Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. about the National Press Club. Now, I know it was the, the 50th anniversary, and that's often the occasion for things like publications. I, I've, you know, I've heard a rumour there's a centenary going on at the moment, actually. There seems to be quite a, a lot happening with that. Um, but, you know, this is perhaps not of equal importance, but it, it should be considered of great importance nonetheless. So why do we need a book about the National Press Club? That's a very good start, uh, starting question. <laughs> well, look, look. first, in the interest of transparency and accountability, and aren't we all uh, interested in that in these uh, metadata times? Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm on the board of the National Press Club. I have been for some years. Um, and I'm also um, a, a journalist, writer, and I've, I've written a few books. Um, and it was our 50th anniversary. In fact, technically speaking, the club started in 63. Technically speaking, I'm out of here then. yeah, yeah, <laughs> 2000. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, the actual no, uh, 2013 was technically, but we, we decided to celebrate 2014 as our 50th anniversary, um, and, and we as a board had thought for some years that it was important to to document and chronicle what the press club had achieved, and it's it's to I guess celebrate uh, its status uh, in Australian public life, and yeah, I, I decided for a number of reasons that I was going to take on the project. I had the time because I, uh, I'd, I'd left a, a previous job and I had um, I'd finished writing a, uh, a novel with uh, Chris Ullman and I had some time on my hands and I thought I would uh, get cracking on it. I didn't realise when I started what a, what, a, what a massive project it would be, mainly because I guess I was... Um, I didn't realise how many wonderful, wonderful addresses have been delivered since 1963 when I think it was Garfield Barwick who did the first... Um, you know, around about July or August of that particular year. Uh, we don't start till 1964 when a bloke called Robert Menzies addressed the club. In fact, it was called the National Press Luncheon Club back then. And it was very much um, established in order to provide a luncheon club um, for, you know, for, for journalists and diplomats and others who were, had an interest in uh, political life. It does have, as you say, you know, a lot of absolutely amazing speeches. And I, I guess as I read through it, I mean, it struck me this is actually a really good way of telling the history of modern Australia. And, you know, I guess we tend to associate the National Press Club with political speeches and political moments. But what's striking about the book, and I'm sure this reflects the broader history, is that, you know, every endeavour imaginable in some ways is represented, you know, amongst those speakers. Yeah, I think that's right. I think one of the beauties of the club and what's really endured is the just the diversity of speakers and some of the most... Powerful speeches have been delivered, not by politicians, um, but by, by others. I mean, um, uh, uh, probably the most powerful, two most powerful speeches, both of which I've written about in here. Uh, one was from uh, um, Mick Dodson, of course, is uh, very well known to everybody and to the ANU. But also uh, a bloke who I never heard of before called Barry Kirby, yeah. um, who was a carpenter who became this uh, extraordinary person. He had this... Um, major conversion from being a carpenter to becoming a uh, a, um, 
uh, gynaecologist um, um, who basically saved lives up in PNG. And he, he spoke at the press club last year um, as part of a, uh, an event that was uh, sponsored by Send Hope Not Flowers, which is essentially a charity designed to try and um, to uh, improve the infant mortality rate in PNG. And uh, he delivered, I was hosting that particular day, and he delivered probably the most uh, powerful speech or address that, that I can recall. And I thought, this is just extraordinary. So I wanted to try and capture that. You know, I wanted to capture Menzies and Keating and Hawke and Howard and Whitlam and, and all of the great, uh, Thatcher and all of the political greats we've had over the years address the National Press Club. I mean, we had Chris Bowen last week. We've got um, um, Christine Milne in a couple of weeks. I mean, we have all the leading political figures speak at the club as, you know, in contemporary times. But I wanted to try and capture more than just the politics, you know, the, the, the raw politics or the, you know, the political speeches because the National Press Club, as you say, it is more than just politics. It's about capturing social, uh, artistic, economic uh, developments. And I think one of the things that I, uh, I noticed as I researched came back 50 years to 1964 um, was just how, how things had changed. Um, and also, I guess, to some extent, how things have remained the same. But it was quite interesting... Uh, researching and looking at speeches that have been delivered over the years, um, what was acceptable then, what wasn't acceptable, and what has become, I guess, part of the norm. I mean, one of the, I think one of the things that has really changed is that um, that the the line of questioning from journalists tended to be more robust in years gone by. I don't think, with some exceptions, the <coughs> level of the, the questioning that takes place at the press club is by and large as robust um, as, as it was. And there's some great examples in here where Prime Ministers have been, you know, almost accused of being corrupt by journalists asking questions. You wouldn't get that these days, I don't believe. Yeah, um, I mean, that might be a really good cue to talk about questions. I mean, perhaps we're going in the wrong order here, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, most of the essays end with, you know, the, the, the questions that were, that were asked. And I, I just wonder if, if you might like to talk about some of the, the more... Well, more memorable questioners um, and perhaps also some of the really heavy-hitting questions because yeah. there have been some really important moments, haven't there? Yeah. In, in, in and I think in the history of the press club, I think I'm right in saying that the only address where there were no questions was by um, Menzies, which was, a, which was um, September 1964. Um, and he gave this... Uh, it's, a great, it's a great speech. You can hear Menzies, by the way, if you go to the National Library. They have uh, an extraordinary... Um, set of recordings of uh, National Press Club speeches going back to about 64. Um, but the questions, questions have played a really important um, part because, of course, um, your hour-long National Press Club address is roughly divided into a 30-minute speech and 30 minutes of Q&A. Unless it's Ellen Jones. Unless it's Ellen Jones, <laughs> who in 2011, I think, went for about 45 minutes. My mate Mark Kenny, who's uh, Fairfax National Political Editor, was hosting that day. I wasn't there. And after about 35 minutes, Mark starts looking at his, uh, his watch and starts, you know, and at that 40 minute mark, he said to uh, Alan, if you could wind up, and Jones, without sort of losing stride, said, yeah, when I'm ready, mate, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then uh, Mark Kenny, it was about fracking, and Mark Kenny says his problem was there were too many of these fracking projects. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't get a laugh, apparently. Uh, no, no. Yeah, it is. But look, some of the memorable, more memorable, Questions. I mean, you can't go past some of uh, Laurie Oak. Uh, 
And I must, they must start sort of shaking as soon as they said. In fact, you evoked this at one point where he, he walks in and people knew it was rub, I think, wasn't it? People knew it was a rub. No. Um, Gillard. People, Gillard. People knew something was up. That's yeah. right. It was where Gillard had just tipped out rub. And, and his, mere, his mere appearance there, because he wasn't a regular, suggested that there were going to be fireworks. Yeah, and this was just after Gillard had, had uh, defeated Rudd in 2010, June 2010. And then she gave a speech about a month or so later, I think, at the National Press Club. And it was a, this was an important speech for her, because we all recall the circumstances. Um, she, had no, she didn't have a honeymoon. Um, there were a lot of people within the ALP um, who were still very sceptical, very angry. So she really needed to stamp an imprimatur on the Prime Ministership. So this speech at the National Press Club was important. It's not a bad speech. Um, if you read it, the speech itself is a good... Uh, snapshot of where Gillard was and where she wanted to take the country. But when Laurie Oakes asked, I don't know, I think it was about the second question, um, and he had clearly been briefed by, yeah, maybe somebody associated with the former Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd, <laughs> about, essentially about the circumstances of that, that meeting on the, um, the, the, the infamous day um, before um, Rudd formally vacated the, uh, the Prime Ministership. And, and Laurie gave this long sort of you know, dissertation of what had actually happened in the, in the, in the meeting. And Gillard, Gillard's response was, was clever. I mean, she didn't, have, she didn't have much choice. But she answered it with good humour by saying, well, you know, you've really made it when the great Laurie Oakes comes down and you know, throws you a, a curveball question like you've just thrown me. But it was, it was the beginning of the campaign by Rudd and his supporters to undermine Gillard. And that didn't really um, finish until three years later when Rudd reclaimed the Prime Ministership. So that was a very important uh, moment. Uh, and there have been other questions, you know, that perhaps not have, perhaps not the same impact, but certainly have been pretty robust over the years. Um, there was one that Peter Bowers, uh, one of the great greats of the National Press uh, Gallery, who passed away a number of years ago, asked of Bob Hawke in 1984 in the first televised debate um, which was at the National Press Club, where it was Hawke and Andrew Peacock. And as I sort of alluded to before, um, when you read this question from... I mean, it wasn't so much a question as an accusation from Peter Bowers about Mr Hawke and some previous uh, dealings that he'd had. It was about uh, some American currency that had been stolen from him. $1,000, I think, that's right. Yeah. For long-winded questions, you can't go past, again, uh, another, another former... Uh, Press gallery and uh, journalist uh, Bruce Jatterer. Someone who, I mean, was a, um, certainly a presence on campus when I was uh, at times when I was a student about 25 years ago. With his cigars, I remember Bruce. Yeah, uh, yeah. Bruce was a, uh, a was a fixture at the press club. I mean, he was an eccentric. He loved to drink or or six, and <laughs> and he enlivened uh, events. But I don't know if any of you can recall a juddery question uh, usually went for some minutes. And there were plenty of occasions when you know, Prime Ministers, Keating and others would say, come on, Bruce, yeah, just get to the end. <laughs> but they would just go on and on and on and on. Except and Bill Gates. Bill Gates, that's right. <laughs> well, Bill Gates in 84 addressed the club, and it's still the record. It was held over at the Convention Centre, and it was about, I think it was about 1,200, 1,300 people, but it's still a record for a National Press Club address, only because of the location. And Juddery got up, and Laurie Wilson, who's the current president, uh, was the host at the time, and and uh, you know Bill Gates was still was probably at the time the richest man in the world, but you know a very significant figure. Juddery got up and asked a long, long question, went on and on and on. At some point, Laurie said, "Come on, Bruce, hurry up with your question." 
And Bill Gates goes, no, 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 I'm enjoying this. Let me go. <laughs> so Bruce, of course, got to ask his long-winded question. Yeah, that's not an invitation, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> There's a wonderful reproduction of his question to Indira Gandhi, actually, which goes on for about half a page. Should I or shouldn't I? What I think you should. I think I, I will. Think this is Bruce Juddery uh, to Indira Gandhi in 1979, I think. I think that's uh, right. Somewhere around yeah. there. Um, okay. Um, so, Jadari, Prime Minister, you suggested earlier that what members of the Commonwealth had in common was a commitment to peace. I suggest that whenever the Commonwealth has actually shown its mettle, it's also been in a commitment to individual rights, particularly as drawn up in a racial sense, if you like. Um, 21 years ago, one country was driven out of the Commonwealth because of its racism and its oppression of people of certain races, and rightly so. Two years ago, it passed its greatest test, if you like, when it helped force the issue of Zimbabwe. And of course, recently, we've had the row over New Zealand and the Springboks and so forth. I ask you, what will be the position of India if and when the concern of the Commonwealth goes beyond simply racial freedom and equality? He's not finished yet. <laughs> what will happen if Commonwealth countries refuse to play against Indian teams because of the gross oppression of the Harijans or untouchable people in India, which your government and your predecessor's government have only made small steps to improve? To the extent the Harijan now in the south of India, many villages of them, many thousands of them are deserting Hinduism and becoming Muslims in order to get out of the oppressive system which your government has not managed to do anything about. That they were doing a lot to relieve the oppression of the untouchables. Yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah that, was, that, was, that was one of Jadari's final moments. <laughs> I love, speaking of fine moments, I mean, I love the way that the opening two, we were talking earlier about the diversity of the contributions, and yeah. I, I think it takes a particular sense of humour, Steve, to open the book with Robert Menzies followed by the Dalai Lama. Was that deliberate or, or yes. accidental? <laughs> yeah, I bet it was. I mean, I was thinking of how, you know, kind of orthodox, you know, sort of academic historian would have done this book. And they probably would have gone for, you know, some chronology and started in 1963 and then yeah. worked through. But I'm actually struck by how well it works, you know, th this sort of way of telling it through a series of essays that aren't in chronological order and, in fact, in a sense, make that argument about diversity the way they sit next to one another. I mean, that's the best example, I think. Yeah. But there are others in there, actually. Well, and we yeah. thought about that. I mean, we could have done it chronologically. So we could have started with Menzies and finished with... I think it was Howard and uh, Hawke when they were jointly on yeah. stage last year. Uh, we could have done it thematically. In fact, the 25th anniversary book, um, History, which is really just speeches with a bit of top, you know, it's, it's, um, it, was, it was very different to this. That was done thematically. So, you know, politics, then it had, you know, social policy and then arts or something like that. We could have done it along those lines. But I thought it was really important. Um, and the more I went on with it, um, to, to sort of have this sort of organic sort of chapter selection, basically. And you're right, Frank, it was important to try and capture the diversity, <coughs> diversity and breadth of the sorts of people we've had at the National Press Club. So there was quite a lot of um, argy-bargy and debate about the order of it. And, yeah, you know, we really want to sort of kick it off with a bang. Yeah, Menzies is a, Menzies is a really, you know, is a, is a great speech. Um, it's, uh, it was a very sort of discursive... I mean, it's a great sort of stroll down memory lane. And he talks about, you know, some... I mean, this is back in 64. He'd been in the parliament since 39? Oh, uh, earlier, since the, the, the mid-30s. 
yeah. So he talks about lions and he, he talks about all these greats and he has a fond word for, you know, Chifley. You know, it was well known that he and Chifley and, uh, and, and Curtin, you know, all got on. It was you know, they were quite friendly behind the scenes. He has a good word for everybody but a little digger, Billy Hughes, who he, uh, <laughs> yeah, who he, who he, couldn't, who he couldn't stand. Um, so it was important to do that. And then, yeah, I thought the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama has spoken, I think, three times at the National Press Club. And I've, I think I've been to at least one of those. And, um, and you know, I thought he was, uh, I mean, his speeches are difficult to reproduce or write because of the way, you know, he speaks in English and his English is not, you know, that good. So it's sort of quite hard to reproduce it. Um, it's not as coherent as you would like. But nevertheless, I mean, uh, he is an extraordinary person. And it's a great anecdote, of course. There he is. Uh, the st- Mark, tell us about Michael Kirby and, uh, well, and the stake. I'd, I'd heard this sort of story about the Dalai Lama turning up to the press club and something about a, a steak, a piece of meat. And I heard this sort of, and I thought it was an apocryphal thing. In fact, Peter Lowe, uh, I don't know if any of you know, Peter Lowe's a great, you know, used to be a, uh, a senior member of the gallery, he was on the press club board. He told me this story about it, and mm. I thought Logie might have um, you know, <laughs> embellished it. So I emailed him. Uh, garnished it a bit. Garnished it a little bit yeah. with a bit of uh, Bernays sauce. But I, I asked Michael Kirby about this um, fairly late in the piece. I wrote him an email, I got through to him by email after ringing his office in Sydney. He was in Tasmania, and I said, oh, you know, Mr. Kirby, you know, but I'm writing this book and I've heard this anecdote about the Dalai Lama and yourself and, you know, look, you know, I'm, frankly, I'm not sure that it's... But I just wondered whether... And to my, uh, you know, delight and uh, slight amazement, he not only... He responded in kind and said, absolutely, and, uh, and gave me this wonderful, wonderful, you know, very theatrical sort of response. I might just sort of yeah, quickly, yeah, quickly, quickly read it out. Um, Michael Kirby was horrified. It was 7th of May 1992 and His Holiness... The 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso, had just sat down for lunch at the National Press Club. From over his left shoulder, a waiter placed a tender steak before the spiritual leader. <laughs> Kirby, the eminent jurist who would go on to serve in the High Court, grabbed at the plate, assuming a major cultural faux pas had been committed. Quote, I was mortified, he recalls. How could the NPC be so culturally insensitive as to offend the eyes and nose of this leader of the global Buddhist community by offering this large piece of dead cow? (laughs) Didn't everyone know that Buddhists, certainly high-level monks, are strict vegetarians? I endeavoured to shield the senses of the Dalai Lama from this affront to his sensibilities. I placed my arm at a level between his eyes and the offending plate so that he, he would not even see what had happened. I called in an anguished voice to the wait to return. I almost screamed words to the effect, please take this plate away. Don't you know that his holiness is a strict vegetarian? But the guest of honour had other, other ideas and clasped the plate with great determination to stop the waiter removing it. Kirby remembers being surprised by the speed and strength of his intervention. <laughs> There was no way he was going to lose the meaty morsel. In between characteristic giggles and laughter, he said something to the, to the effect, no, 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 my doctors have told me that I have to eat meat. I have a serious iron deficiency. <laughs> so he had his steak. That's his, that's, that's his story and he's sticking to it. <laughs> it's a great story. I didn't go to the Dalai Lama <laughs> to get... Uh, 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 I thought, I'm going with Michael Kirby. <laughs> uh, which... Really brings me. I mean, in fact, this was surely one of the moments of high drama that I want to ask you about now. But 
Steve, could you tell us, I mean, there have been a number of occasions where the events at the National Press Club, um, you know, have had really big repercussions for politics, for particularly for politics, I think. Um, could you perhaps talk a little bit about some of those? They're often events where it simply wasn't expected, but for, for whatever reason, the particular speech that was given, um, the particular occasion turned out to be quite momentous. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, there's probably one of the most famous speeches, which wasn't a press club address, but was... Uh, took place downstairs at the National Press Club in, oh, geez, what am I, December 1990? Is that right? Yes, 90, no, no, 90. Yeah, 90, Placido yeah. Domingo. So yeah. the famous Paul Keating Placido Domingo speech, which I'm sure many of you would be familiar with. And that was, the occasion was the press gallery dinner, which was, um, still takes place, and it's essentially a, a, an off-the-record Chatham House rules uh, affair where the press club, the, the uh, sorry, the press gallery would turn up, there would be a senior political figure who would be able to speak fearlessly, uh, knowing that their speech, his or her speech, would not be reported. It was a chance for the press gallery and that senior political figure to have a good sort of, you know, good meal at the end of the year. And would often end up with, quite seriously, with you know, people on the dance floor and the, the guest really enjoying his or herself. But Keating turned up on, um, on this particular occasion um, less than 24 hours uh, or 24 hours after the Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Prisigan, had died um, after he was, he'd been running, been jogging up at uh, Bill Conan, up at the AIS track, I think, and uh, he had a, a bad heart, and um, Chris Higgins had died aged far too young. 46. 46, 46 yeah. 46, yeah. yeah. And Keating was very close to Higgins and, and, and had spent most of the previous night comforting his widow and family. So when he turned up the press club, you know, Keating was really not in the mood to deliver a, a light-hearted, end-of-year, you know, piss-take with the press gallery. He really wasn't in the mood. And he was... So as the press gallery were having their dinner and, and eating whatever it was, uh, Keating was madly writing notes on a, on, a, on a coaster. And when he got up, he delivered the famous Placido Domingo speech, which was essentially... Um, it was essentially a challenge to Hawk and basically said, you know, we've never had great leadership in this country, you know, unlike America, and he went through you know, American uh, leaders and that. We haven't had great, um, we haven't had great leadership. And, you know, the, the, the journalists there knew that they, was, they were witnessing an extraordinary speech, but they were in a massive, massive ethical bind because none of them, none of them were able to report that speech. They were bound by Chatham House. They weren't able to. So you've got a cracking speech, you've got the treasurer who, who's yearning for that job, who's just basically said, you know, Hawkey's not up to it. Not, you know, sort of those sorts of things. And so what happened was that speech was leaked out um, the next day to Richard Farmer, who at the time was working for the News Limited Sunday papers. And Farmer wrote the piece on, on Sunday. And it was and it was off and, you know, and, and, and of course that led to, I mean, it eventually led to the, the second, uh, the second challenge or the first challenge? Oh, what's the first one? It's late night. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. yeah, that's right. But um, it's, it's uh, I mean, one of the provocations was he, he called John Curtin a trier, didn't he? Um, which it was a real, oh, right. a real provocation yes. to Hawke, who kind of idolised uh, John right. Curtin. Didn't that's he? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's and, and there have been others too. I mean, could you talk a little? I mean, this is obviously, a, I guess, a more sensitive one for the National Press Club, but uh, the so-called Wormgate and, and what that was all about in the 2007 election. Yes. I mean, reading that chapter, I mean, I don't know how this is regarded now 
at the National Press Club. But, you know, you can see arguments both ways. I can see why someone under pressure might have stopped, you know, attempted to stop the feed. Yeah. Tell us about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the Chief Executive, Morris Riley, is overseas, so I'm safe to go uh, talk about it. Um, yeah, Wormgate was, Wormgate was uh, one of those extraordinary uh, moments in press club history, which, you know, we didn't handle it very well, and it, it, um, it, it exploded on the uh, election stage. I'm just trying to find the actual chapter here. Um, and, but what happened was back in, nine, in 2007. So what's happened with... When the election's called, the leaders, um, the Prime Minister and the uh, alternative Prime Minister hold debates. We all know that. And, and the incumbent party uh, always uh, has the upper hand and is always determined to try and have as few debates as possible and then to control the rules as much as they can. And it doesn't matter whether it's Labor or Liberal. It's always been that case. So in 2007, uh, of course, um, Howard was Prime Minister, um, been in power, Liberal Party the, the rules and they basically uh, stipulated uh, in the contract, uh, in the, in the uh, agreement that there would be no worm. Uh, why? Because they knew that Howard was going to get hammered by the worm and that Kevin Rudd, who you all remember was incredibly popular at the time, was, was going to do better. So Does they didn't know what the worm, this is this, you know, the thing where you press the button or whatever to, to you know. And, and, so, and so basically the, when the, the, uh, the rules for the um, debate were circulated to the various broadcasters, political parties, the National Press Club, etc., etc. It said, I mean, it said, it stipulated, it said no worm. And what happened on the night was that the ABC was a host broadcaster, Sky News was taking a feed, as was Channel 9. Ray Martin was hosting the Channel 9 uh, telecast in the Willoughby studios. So he would top, he would introduce it and say, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to go to the National Press Club, where you have blah, 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 John Allen, Kevin Rudd, etc. And they had a hundred uncommitted voters in the studio, all of, all of whom had the device you know, where you would go up if you were, thought it was positive, down, etc., etc. the world. And the press club had no idea that this was, um, that Channel 9 had, had wheeled in the worm. Um, the ABC had no idea. The uh, government had no idea. Um, really, Channel 9 kept it to themselves. And it was only uh, an eagle-eyed producer uh, who was in the, I think, in the bowels of the... Uh, the parliament, because it was at the, uh, the Great Hall, the debate in the Great Hall, who noticed at about 7.50 after the debate had been going about 20 minutes that Channel 9 were using the worm. And look, what happened after that, I'm not quite sure, but, you know, the press club was notified. We went to Channel 9 and said, you have to stop. You know, you've breached the rules, you know, blah, blah. Warnings and threats were made. Channel 9 said, up yours, we're going to continue. <laughs> and the feed to Channel 9 was... Uh, was was uh, uh, axed, cut, thank you, thank you, Frank, um, was cut at about 7.55. They then went, they reverted to another feed, I think. That was cut again and then they reverted to a, a so-called dirty feed from Sky News. So for the rest of the broadcast, from about 8 o'clock to whenever it finished, uh, as, I, as I understand it, as I recall it, they had the Sky News insignia or whatever. But they, you know, most people wouldn't have known the difference. Oh, hell broke loose afterwards the, um, because basically the National Press Club said, you know, Channel 9 has breached the rules. But Channel 9 went on this amazing PR offensive. They put Ray Martin out on, on AM and all that saying, you know, you know, here's the National Press Club breaching freedom of the press and trying to sanction and, you know, you know censor what we can do, all this sort of stuff. And um, Bob Brown called for a Senate in inquiry. <laughs> and, 
And the press club, you know, and, and then Glenn Milne, who was on the board of the press club, he went out on the counter-offensive saying the press club had acted within its rights and it was Channel 9. And it was, a, it was a big issue for about 24 hours. But it left a very sour taste. I can tell it left a very sour taste uh, in Laurie Oaks, who to, the, to, to this day uh, has not forgiven uh, the National Press Club um, for that particular incident. And I interviewed Laurie, who, who I have enormous regard for, one of the great political journalists of our time. Um, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he remains to this day quite embittered uh, about the way the press club handled it. Um, we could have handled it with a little bit more, you know, tact. But it was one of those extraordinary moments where, what do you do? I mean, Channel 9 yeah. clearly, clearly breached the election rule and the Liberal Party were not happy with it. That's an interesting story. And it, you know, again, it, it's the unexpected, isn't it, which you get. I mean, it, there are arranged set-piece speeches and, um, you know, presumably things go entirely as expected and, there, and yet there is also in the history of this National Press Club those moments that come out of the field. Another one you talk about is Telstra and, and the whole yeah. business of Telstra shares, which uh, is, is also... A, yes. uh, you were there, actually, weren't you, for this one? Is that, you were I was. Yeah. I was. Yeah. Yeah. I asked one of the questions. Yeah, yeah. that, that yeah. was um, Salt Rahil, who were uh, one of the three amigos, in fact... I was corrected by Telstra. It was actually there were three amigos and Salter here, but uh, he was he was um, brought out from America to run Telstra from about 2005 to about 2009, I think. Yeah. He earned a squillion dollars, even by those you know by by CEO standards back then. And he also saw um, he addressed the press club about a year after he'd started, and in that time the share price had gone from about four dollars to about two dollars um, sixty. The share price had dropped about a third. Now, you remember, of course, that you had about 1.3 million so-called mum and dad shareholders in Telstra. So the government had a huge amount riding on the Telstra share price because it had sold it, very controversially privatised Telstra. Uh, so Sol Trujillo got up at the press club and basically spent the first part of his speech attacking the, the regulator, the ACCC, and basically saying that you know, regulation in Australia was holding Telstra to ransom, was holding back Australia's prospects of becoming a, a serious player in the the global economy, etc., etc. Uh, but when it came to questions, he had a, a series of questions from people like Mark Riley and uh, the late Matt Price, basically saying, you know, you know, aren't you responsible for driving the share price down? I got to ask the last question, and I sort of thought, well, I'm, you know, he's sort of ducked and weaved a little bit. I got up and said, you know, shouldn't you be responsible? Shouldn't you be accountable for the fact that 1.3 million shareholders have seen their shares drop by one third? You know, it was a massive drop in market cap. And to my surprise and to the horror of the Telstra uh, PR team who was sitting there in the front row, Trujillo had obviously had enough and he said he decided to give as good as, as he got. And he basically sort of launched in this sort of tirade against all this sort of stuff. And at the end he said, yeah, and I'm proud as to, you know, you know what we've done at Telstra, which was, which was written up as, you know, Sol Trujillo, I'm proud, wiping $18 million, billion <laughs> off market cap. <laughs> John Howard was... Absolutely furious and and um, made some very strong public comments. But it gets better, show. doesn't it? Because then you have this dinner with the other Telstra official, Phil Burgess. Phil Burgess. But, I mean, that's even more dramatic, wasn't yeah. it? Because that was another one of these you know, Chatham House type affairs, yeah. wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, yeah we, we uh, yeah, Press Club often has, has dinners with uh, business people and what have you. And Telstra, which has been a long-term sponsor of the club, we had Phil Burgess, who was, was one of the three amigos. He was in charge of regulation. And, I, and again, I was at this dinner with uh, Michelle Bratton and I, I think Laura Tingle, David Crow, and a few others. And and we had and again the dinner was uh, off the record. 
it was a chance for us to get to know Phil. Um, and he'd only, I, I'm just trying to recall the time, and I think this was before Sol Trujillo's speech. Anyway, unbeknownst to us, Telstra had decided on this strategy to basically take on the government. And this dinner was part of it. So even though it was off the record, Phil started talking about how Telstra was, was you know, bound and all these excessive regulations. And he had a copy of a report by JP Morgan, I think, uh, which said that, look, the share price is, you know, whatever it is now, $3, but it's going to go down to $1.80 sort of thing. And he kept sort of brandishing this, this report, you know, you know, this is what's going to happen. And at some point during the... Uh, he was drinking Diet Coke. We were all drinking wine. He was drinking Diet Coke. I remember that. Not and tequila. Not tequila. No. And at some, point, <laughs> at some point during the dinner, he said, you know, that if things are so bad, I wouldn't recommend Telstra shares to my mother. <laughs> and we all stopped mid sort of mouthful and said... Just rewind that a bit. <laughs> um, what did you... And he said, well, you know, I said this, and I think it was Michelle Bratton, um, you know, who said, would you, would you be prepared to say that for the record? Burgess is great for, you know, was great for journalists. He said, yeah, I think, yeah, I, think I would. I could see the Telstra guy sort of going, oh, yeah, sort of ashen-faced as they saw my guy. So we worked out a form of words. Uh, we've got an on-the-record comment. There were five journos in the room. We've got you, beauty. Yeah, Michelle Grant was scrambling for paper and pencils, that sort of stuff. Because we weren't expecting a story. This was just going to be a dinner. But then we got, we realised the time was about 9.30. Uh, I was working at The Australian, which had late deadlines, but David Crow, who at the time was at Financial Review, just, he'd just arrived. He'd arrived in Canberra a week earlier. He, he thought, my God, how good is Canberra when you get stories like this? Um, we basically realised that we couldn't write the story that night because certain papers, the Fin Review in particular, would not be able to write the story up. So we had to reach an agreement amongst those in the room that we would, in, we would hold the story for 24 hours, which is bloody hard for journalists. And frankly, wouldn't, wouldn't have to. You couldn't do it now. Social media, the story would yeah. be out there. But we did. We sat on the story and, and we put it out there, um, you know, well, the day after, basically. And, yeah, the story had a fair bit of... Uh, I think the ACCC needs to hear about this is sort of cartel behaviour, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Is it Section 46? <laughs> Abuse of monopoly power. <laughs> it is. Rod Sims. I wanted to ask you about memorable speeches. You've already talked about some of those. But, yeah. I mean, what are the ones... I mean, the... the um, you know, you, you talked earlier about um, Barry Kirby. Yeah. Um, but what are some of the others that really stand out, the ones that kind of live on years later? Yeah, look, there's, 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 there's quite a few. There's quite a few. I mean, I think there's been a lot of Prime Ministerial um, speeches that have been delivered that have been, um, been quite memorable. Uh, it's interesting, a lot of the... Um, uh, John Howard, for instance, um, he, I don't recall any of his speeches as Prime Minister that were particularly memorable. Um, but probably the one that Howard gave that had the most uh, impact was when he was a shadow treasurer back in '84. And a, a little bit like Placido Domingo, he effect, effectively issued a challenge to Andrew Peacock, who was in it, then opposition leader. And Peacock certainly um, took Howard's speech as very much a, uh, a, an attempt to rattle Peacock, as an attempt by Howard to put forward his leadership credentials. And Peacock uh, called uh, a leadership challenge on for a few days after that, called Howard back from the snow, I think, memorably, yeah. yeah. And, and then that was... And then basically Peacock stood down because Howard won a, a ballot for deputy leadership. So that's pretty spectacular. Um, just quickly on uh, Tony Abbott, um, probably the most memorable speech he's delivered or not delivered was, of course, when he was the health minister <laughs> in 2007 when he failed, failed to turn up for <laughs> a debate... I guess shit, shit happens, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
it was a little bit like that. It was another. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you recall. This was 2007. It was uh, halfway through the campaign. Things were not going well for Tony. No. Um, he'd, um, he'd accused Bernie Banton, who, of course, had, was on his deathbed at the time, of, of I forget the phrase, but he made some fairly... Uh, like a stunt, as if it was some sort yeah, of stunt. Yeah, that's right. He had to retract really? those. Yeah. Things were not going well. Yeah. He was in Melbourne with, a, with John Howard. They were doing some announcement. Howard had said, you've got to come to Melbourne for this health announcement. Abbott said, I've got to be back at the press club. Yeah, no problems. You can hop on the plane. You'll be fine. Uh, but the plane was late, etc., etc. So Nicola Roxon started that debate by herself, and Abbott didn't actually turn up until about 31, 32 minutes into the debate, and it was just a disaster. It was for, for Roxon, it was just gold. And she said, "Well, you know, I've been telling you how out of, out of touch and arrogant this government is, but not turning up for a press club debate. Hello." <laughs> and then right at the right at the end of it, um, there was the after the uh, microphones were off, and Tony Abbott. And Roxon was just having a little quiet chat. Roxon was berating him and saying, you could have made it if you really wanted to. And Abbott said, that's bullshit. And that was picked up and that played again on <laughs> the night. So, yeah, that was a memorable speech for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, and I guess for all the right reasons, Buckle of Havel, which is, I mean, it really stands out as really almost poetic, actually. Yeah. I mean, you can tell this is a, well, this yeah. is a writer. Yeah, this is a poet. And, and it comes through, actually, in the, the, the sections of his speech that you reproduce in there. And we reproduced uh, the Havel speech from, uh, I forget the date, was it 81? Um, I wasn't there, but um, Laurie Wilson actually um, recalls the speech. I think he was, might have been chairing it. Uh, but it is a quite extraordinary it's speech. A former uh, president of uh, Czechoslovakia and uh, a poet and uh, an extraordinary person. And uh, the speech itself, you're, you're right. I mean, we, I think we reproduced it almost word for word. Yeah. We didn't want to edit it because it was one of those speeches that you just had to read in its entirety. Mm. Um, yeah, one of the dilemmas when writing a book like this is you want to put, you want to just capture large chunks of the of the speech. But you know, I mean, I think I'm not sure how many words we wrote in the end. Probably about eighty thousand or so. But yeah, it's a fairly chunky book. But you know, the Havel speech was just an absolute magnificent speech. There have been others as well. I mean, the Barry Kirby speech, which you mentioned, is a pretty it extraordinary pretty speech. Yeah. It's extraordinary because it's so powerful and so yeah. emotional and so raw. And he, he just tells his story of, of, of P&G, of this country just to our north that receives three, $400 million of aid every year, but really conditions are just so absolutely primitive. And the, the, uh, the, the um, female mortality rate, women giving birth, is just... Absolutely extraordinary, and it's a very powerful speech. Um, so you know, again, that's that's one. Uh, Mick Dodson, as I mentioned yeah. before, he um, he's spoken a number of times at the club. Spoke not too long ago, but the one that I recall, the one that I spoke to him about, the one yeah. that we reproduced was two thousand three. Two thousand three. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. Frank. Um, about violence in Aboriginal communities, and again, I just remember sitting there at this, sitting there listening to this uh, respected. Indigenous representative just tell this extraordinary story. And, you know, I've tried to reproduce as much of it as possible. It's harrowing. Yes. It's not pretty, um, but it's incredibly powerful. And it, it, it prompted the then Prime Minister Howard to call a, a sort of a summit. But it was a very, very powerful, a powerful speech. speech. Could I ask about, um, I mean, obviously you have to be very selective. I mean, 50 years of, of speeches. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you have to leave a lot out. Um, 
how much pain did that cause? And uh, you know, are there you know some speeches looking back where you think it would have been great to be able to include those? Yeah, look, there probably are some speeches in retrospect I would have liked to have put in there, but a couple of things we. we we said from the outset we we're going to cover all Prime Ministers. So that's, I'm not sure how many that is, but mm. from Menzies to, to Abbott is, what, 12 maybe? So we had to, co we had to cover those. Um, we wanted to, I wanted to try and best, as best I can, try and balance the politics. I didn't want, you know, a whole heap of people on the left, a whole heap of people on the right. I wanted to try and balance it. I also wanted a, a spread of, you know, politics of art, of, of social policy. Um, uh, I wanted there to be, as best I could, a gender balance. And I'm not sure what the ratio is. I suspect it's about 35% women um, represented in the book, which is probably about where the press club is at. I mean, for the first four or five years, we had maybe one or two uh, female speakers, which, which uh, was, was uh, a reflection of the times. I mean, Menzies' um, cabinet or ministry had, I don't think, any female representation. So it was an unfortunate reflection of the times. But I wanted to try and make sure that we captured... Um, uh, you know, as, as many of, uh, women who'd spoken at the club, and we've had some extraordinary speeches from people such as um, Jermaine Greer. I mean, that yeah, that's that's another powerful yeah. speech, actually, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, she's at the absolute you know height of her powers. Uh, he, yeah. It's it's straight after the female eunuchs published yeah. uh, in the early seventies, and you know she comes to the press club. She's going to talk about journalism. She's. Got, I mean, that, it's, get, it's about journalism. Yeah, she she blokes, and blokes and journalism yeah, too, isn't right. it? You know? yeah. Yeah, yeah, she doesn't yeah. hold back. She does not hold back no. at all. Um, I, I think, sorry, yeah, just on that, yeah. we didn't, I mean, uh, we didn't cover a lot of the treasurers. I mean, because, you know, the treasurers, we've got Joe Hockey in a couple right. of weeks after the budget. We didn't cover a lot of the, lot of the treasurers. And that was, I don't know if it was an oversight. Um, we did cover some speeches like John Howard and the shadow treasurer. Yeah. We did cover Keating... But I think mainly Keating is as Prime Minister as opposed to Treasurer. Mm. That maybe was an oversight, I'm not sure. Um, and also there's not there's not that many senior business figures in the book. We've mentioned a couple like Salter here. Mm. But that in part I think is because we haven't had, for whatever particular reason, we haven't had a lot of senior business people who've spoken or when they have spoken have actually delivered compelling speeches. I mean, mm. you know, you want you want the you want the speeches to be interesting, entertaining, informative. But also, you know, compelling content. Otherwise, they don't deserve to be in the book. Yeah, but you got—I mean, you got the scientists, the Nobel Prize laureates. You've got the entertainers. You know, Shirley MacLaine's in there, and the questions weren't even about Andrew Peacock, as far as I could tell. <laughs> well, there's a great story um, about. Uh, yeah, that's right, Shirley MacLaine. She, uh, I mean, her speech—I wasn't at it, but it was—it's a weird speech. <laughs> it's very new um, age. Yeah. yeah, it's very new age. Very new and, age. But she was incredibly nervous when she turned up. Peacock, who I don't know, I don't think she was in a relationship with Peacock at the time. No, I, well, the impression you get is she wasn't. Yeah. But Peacock yeah. had told, had warned her against doing it. Why the hell are you doing the press club? Do <laughs> bloody journal. All they're going to do is ask about you and me and all sort of stuff. And she was apparently very, very nervous when she turned up. In fact, in fact, um, the, the those of the, those on the press club board who were there at the time thought she may not, you know, proceed with a with her speech. But she did, and um, she. Also, when she was speaking, um, the I think the event was running a bit late, so the plates had not been cleared by the time she was got up to the podium to speak. And as the plates were being cleared and there was a sort of rattle of cutlery, she would stop <laughs> and just sort of look at the waiter, the hapless waiter, 
back to the speech. Apparently this went on and on and the, the stairs got slightly longer and slightly more intense. Um, but in the end, she absolutely, uh, she enjoyed herself. And, um, and uh, there was um, yeah, some great moments in her particular speech. I'll have to find that part of the book. There was a great question. Uh, yes, he... he uh, the ABC journalist, his name was Standing erect, I think he said. Um, yeah. yeah, great humour in that particular speech. I think she enjoyed it in the end. Uh, although, as I said, I wasn't actually getting that particular. Towards the end. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose that the last question I wanted to ask before we open it up for, for questions, because we're just after seven. Um, I mean, I guess you've hinted at this with the talk, you know, of the gender balance and so on, but I mean, how has the press club, do you think, changed over that 50 years? I mean, what do you see? I mean, it, it does come across a little bit as a kind of a gentleman's club in some ways in the very early days. Yeah, um, I think that's right. Well, the thing about the press club, which is really interesting, which I didn't find out until I started researching it, and I spoke to Tony Eggleton, um, who was still living in, in Deakin, um, who was the inaugural chairman. Um, and it was it was set up, and, and Tony wasn't in the press gallery, he worked for, I think, Naval Defence, uh, Naval PR. And it was set up, that the press gallery, the heavy hitters in the press gallery, Max Hawkins and Alan Reid and those sorts of people at the time, were not supporters of the National Press Club, in part, or I, I think probably a large extent, because they had extraordinary access to the leaders of the day. They were in old Parliament House, and they could sort of walk into the Prime Minister's office or the Treasurer's office and mm. basically talk to that person, and they didn't have press sets and, yeah. you know, you know all, all that sort of apparatus to get in the way. So they didn't feel the need for the National Press Club as such. Um, I think what's changed, one of the things, so one of the things that has changed is that the relationship between the press and the politicians is, is, is sort of more of a remote and um, probably the politicians are more suspicious yeah. of the press. So the press club, I think, still plays still plays a very important role because it is one of the very few forums that um, you know, where politicians are live and where they're being asked questions by, by the media and where they have to deliver a 25, 30-minute speech. So it is yeah. sort of quite rare in Australia. Yeah. I, I can't think of another forum um, where you had that sort of combination. So, yeah, politicians... I spoke to a lot of them. Um, Bob Brown, I mean, he was as nervous as hell. He first time he spoke at the club, which was 96, he didn't actually sleep that night because he was so bloody nervous. And he wrote a little note, which I, I got a hold of, where he talks about, here it is, 3 a.m. and I still can't sleep, etc., etc., etc. So, yeah, one of the things that surprised me was how nervous uh, parliamentarian people like Bob Brown, some of the greats of Australian politics, were before addressing the press club. You still get that today. Um, look, I think the club still plays a very important role. I would say that I'm on the board, so you know. Um, but I, I do think it does play a very important role, and I think the fact that we're able to attract caliber of speaker that we're still able to attract. Um, if you look at, if you, I mean, every speaker back to Barwick is on our our website, and if you look at the thousands of people who've spoken since that 1963, it is a pretty extraordinary roll call of international and Australian um, dignitaries and, and, and others um, who've contributed so much to our political, social, economic, artistic life. Yeah. And it is, as I think you yeah. said at the beginning, Frank, it is a great snapshot of that half century. And that's what I really wanted it to be. I wanted it to yeah. be a sort of a greatest hits, but to also be a, a really nice sort of snapshot 
of, of how we have changed uh, over that time. Yeah, it's, it's also testament too, and I guess we in universities uh, really feel this, to, to the resilience of the lecture as yeah. a form, you know, because we're often told, oh, you know, no one wants to hear lectures anymore and, you know, students don't want to listen for, for 30 minutes or 40 minutes, but, you know, it survived and it still, it still works as a form when it's done well, um, is the impression I get from from the, I mean, it can also misfire, but you know, clearly it is still there, and it's it's uh, and and it's that's happening basically. And we're making money. Yes. <laughs> Most important. Now, um, I might open things for, for questions now. So I, I don't. Uh, am I, am I, I'm chair. Am I? Well, I'll be chair. I'll be chair. There we go. So please, um, any questions for Steve? Yeah. Or Frank. <laughs> is there any particular speaker that you didn't have that you would like to have appeared at the press club? Yeah, um, we we I don't think we've had American presidents. We did have George Herbert Bush, but before he was before he was president, I think he might have been Secretary of State. Um, so you know, I, I guess I mean, if you could choose now, I'd love to have Barack Obama. I'd love to have Boris Johnson too. Um, I think um, so. You know, I think we've had a good we've had a good uh, roll call of international speakers, but. Um, You'd probably be, be great to have an American president, um, uh, but yeah, we've done pretty well, I think, on that. Um, At least one king, Shah of Iran. Shah of Iran. Shah of Iran. Yeah. Oh, oh, one thing I should say is Shah of Iran. Yeah, that's right. One of the things that's occurred with the number of international speakers, in particular, is um, they've spoken at the press club, and some of them, a short time later, have unfortunately passed away. And I, I, I haven't got any, that sort of morbid detail, but I remember. Um, going through the list and think, oh, my God, you know, um, I mean, Gandhi um, being... Well, one, indeed, being, yes, being one, yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it is that journalists these days are reluctant to ask the hard questions? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm, not quite, I'm not quite sure. That's, that's a really good... Yeah, and I'm not, no longer working as a full-time journalist. I, I, left in, I left the gallery um, 18 months or so ago, so... Um, I'm probably able to... Look, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, maybe because there's much less job security. Uh, maybe they fear that they've got to... Um, there's a lot more pressure on journalists in terms of pumping stuff out. Um, there's... I, I think one of the... Uh, I think if you look at the press gallery, uh, one of the dynamics... <laughs> when I started in the press gallery in 92, there were... I was obviously very a, a junior reporter compared to the... The, uh, the senior uh, reporters, but I think there's less senior reporters there in the press gallery, so there are less people who have basically got the ticker or the you know to the, the courage to ask those tough questions. Um, that said, I mean I still think there's some very good journalists up in the gallery who do ask tough questions, um, and you, you know I mean, you, but yeah I, I don't know I don't quite know the answer to that. Um, uh, I, w I remember being at some pretty robust press conferences with, with everyone. I mean, you know, whether it was John Howard, Julie Gillard, were some pretty tough questions being asked. I think that still takes place today, but it may well be that it's for a whole raft of reasons people are are not asking uh, as tough questions as they used to. First of all, I want to thank you for the partnership that you have with ABC to allow people like me who can't afford $80 for lunch to see the broadcast of the press gallery addresses. 
I think it's wonderful and it's a valuable part of our democracy and our public broadcasting. And I just hope that it's there forever. Um, so first of all, thank you for that. Um, the other thing I was interested in, you mentioned the sort of 30 minute address format. You mentioned the um, election period debate format and you mentioned the Chatham House Rules dinner format. Um, at any of those or any of the other press club events, has anyone ever come out of the closet unintentionally? Because I know when I turned 50, I admitted to people that I was a poet. <laughs> and I'm just wondering whether the press club has seen some of those Denton give them enough rope to hang themselves kind of moment. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just trying to uh, recall whether people have come out of the closet at the press club. Um, I'm you mean in a broad sense, like, yeah. you know, just... As a poet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I get it. I get it. A startling revelation. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just trying to... Uh, I, I, am, I am trying to re recall or remember whether there are... I can't recall... Oh, boy. Um, yeah, there's plenty, been plenty of dramatic moments, but I don't recall any of those sorts of people, you know, revealing themselves as poets. <laughs> um, God forbid. Yeah. No, it's not. No, it's not. Yeah, no, but it's a good question. But um, yeah, yeah. I, I, one of the formats I really like, which I'm trying to encourage more, is debates at the press club. So we had um, a debate on workplace relations with Kate Carnell and Jed Carney a month or so ago. And it was one of the best. Uh, uh, it was one of the best addresses or, or occasions we've had. But it was just a really lively debate between two really articulate, passionate women on a really you know meaty issue. So. I'm trying to do that more and more, or we're trying to do that more and more. I think there's scope to do that. I think the debate format really works well. That's another format. Uh, one thought, just how do you notice the change in the way politicians are answering questions? You talked at the beginning about change and continuity, and I wondered whether there was anything obvious about media training, whether you could see it coming in. Yeah. Uh, how well do they answer the questions? Yeah, that's a good, yeah. Um, well, I think, I said this to Frank beforehand, I think one of the um, revelations, if it's, if it's a revelation, or probably reinforce my view that, um, that I, I think we don't have the great orators um, anymore in Australian politics, not to the same extent that we might have had 40 or 50 years ago. I mean, if you go back, if you listen to the Menzies speech, whatever you thought of Menzies, it was just, it was a great speech, and there were some great lines, great language, and then you had people like, uh, you know, Whitlam and others um, who were able to deliver really good speeches, uh, full of wit and that. I don't think, by and large, we're able to, uh, I don't think we have the parliamentarians, by and large, who are able to, to do that. In terms of answering questions, uh, one of the things that does annoy me is that um, politicians will turn up at the club and they'll announce something and it'll be yeah, quite an important announcement, but then when challenged through the Q&A, they sort of withdraw a little bit. Um, but, you know, again, I'm not quite sure why, why that is. Um, you know, I think, I think politicians, by and large, are on guard more because of the rise of social media, so they're less able to metaphorically let their hair down and that might be reflected in the fact that they're more cautious in the way that they, they, uh, they answer 
uh, answer questions. Um, there have been some exceptions, and there been some. There's also been some. Uh, I, c- I can remember some fairly memorable occasions um, uh, where politicians have turned up. They've had a couple of drinks, they've relaxed, and they've really got into the flow of it. Um, yeah, I don't know if people saw Hawke and Howard last year when they were on stage together. We had that as part of our fiftieth, but it, well, that was that was fantastic. Now they both obviously retired. It was that. love in the room. It was love in the room. <laughs> but they're also. But there was also this. You know, you sort of. There was this sense of they were quite open about, you know, uh, you know about their about their political performances. They were quite open in talking about their flaws and about their strengths. And I thought, wow, yeah, wouldn't it be great to have contemporary politicians who were as open and honest about about their performance? I think that's one of the things that I've I've sort of noticed. Um, yeah, I, I wish. I mean, I think it's I think it's good for politicians to be uh, to be fairly fairly honest. I think. Candor can be it can also be a positive. And you look at someone like Peter Beattie, um, who out of the Shepherdson inquiry made a, a virtue of the fact that he admitted that the Labor Party had mucked up, and, and you know he went on to win that uh, emphatic victory. So I think I think politicians um, who do offer candor to the voter th- through the press club or elsewhere, it can be it can be a positive and can be uh, seen as a virtue, particularly by the electorate, which by and large is is um, is pretty cynical. Sounds like it's time for some book buying and book signing. Well, exactly. I'd love to sign some books. So, I mean, uh, we're selling them at a very competitive price. Absolutely. Well, look, could I... Thanks, David. It is a great read. I mean, and I meant entirely what I said earlier about, yes, it is a history of the press club, but, you you know, you learn so much about modern Australia. Indeed, you know, about the ways it's kind of internationalising in this period because, there are you know, the visitors, as they come through, are also picked up by the press club. And so you get a sense of Australia in a kind of a really dynamic global world, actually, from this. Um, so thanks very much. So congratulations on, on the book. Thank you. May the Press Club uh, continue to flourish in every sense, financially, of course, but also intellectually uh, and uh, just in terms of, of the great role it plays in promoting public debate in Australia. Yeah. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.